Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So thank you for joining us on this um, webinar, which is focused on lung cancer. Um, before we start, can I thank Jenny, Sarah and Andy for joining us today. Um, each of them has uh, knowledge and expertise in um, lung issues, particularly lung cancer. So we're going to take you through um, a journey of um, things that we'll present and um, how we deal with lung cancer, both as general practitioners, but actually in the wider system. One of the questions I was asked was, why are we looking at lung cancer? Well, the long-term plan has been looking at, by 2028, to diagnose 75% of cancers at stage three, at stage one or two. Currently, we're only uh, doing about 54%. So if you look at that, the number of lives saved, if we diagnose more people earlier, is estimated to be another 55,000 lives. People will live more than 10 years um, by 2028 if we manage to move that um, number to the left. Lung cancer is a common cancer. About 48,000 people in the UK present with lung cancer every year, and about 35,000 people die each year, with a 10-year survival rate um, in 2017 was only about 10%. And that was because 75% of people present in stage three or four. Lung cancer is the third most common cancer in the UK and accounts for about 13% of all cancers and is the commonest cause of cancer deaths. So when you look at the long-term plan ambitions, the big question is how do we change um, to get more people diagnosed in stage one or two and how do we get more people to survive their cancer? And that's got to be focused on cancers, um, diagnosing more, sorry about that, and also better treatments. And then that's why I've invited the experts here today to take us through that. So um, to start with, I'll hand over to Andy, who's a GP in Dorset and a member of the Dorset Cancer Par Partnership, who's gonna talk about the background and some of the presentations of cancer. Andy, over to you. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you, Louise, we'll start the slides. So we're going to go through some of the risk factors first for lung cancer, some of which are going to feel very obvious. Um, but I'm really looking at this from a primary care angle and how we should look out for um, people who we suspect may have lung cancer um, going forward. So uh, risk factors, deprivation and increasing age are two of the most important ones. And we tend to obviously think of smoking um, as our priority thought process. But we have to remember this is quite significantly a disease of elderly people um, and, uh, and obviously are more deprived. Next slide, please, Louise. Other risk factors, obviously smoking, but also family history. This increases your risk of lung cancer by 51% if you've had a first degree relative with the condition and 82% if a sibling. Now, obviously, that may just be to um, exposure to smoke within a home, um, but they are the bare um, statistics. Exposure to asbestos, a COPD diagnosis as an, as an independent risk factor. Um, previous pneumonia, cannabis use, previous radiotherapy and exposure to radon gas. 5% of lung cancers are in people who've never smoked and more of the lung cancers in never smokers are in women. So what smoking history actually matters? The total number of cigarettes smoked is more important than the number of years you spent smoking, but the risk does substantially increase after you've been smoking for 40 years. Starting smoking very young at the under 20s is also involved with a higher risk. But actually just smoking 200 cigarettes in your lifetime increases the risk of lung cancer. And if you just pause and think about that number, that's not many um, that can actually have that, that effect. So then looking at COPD and lung, lung cancer. So at the moment, 80 to 90% of patients with COPD are current or ex-smokers. Not all of these are going to get lung cancer, but there is a large overlap. There's a one or two percent incidence per year of lung cancer in patients with COPD. But also it's particularly bad in those patients with COPD who've got abnormal lung function. Okay, so if you've got normal lung function and you're a smoker, then you do uh, far better than if you are a smoker with abnormal lung function, if that makes sense. So when we think about the symptoms of lung cancer, 
One of the things is that up until recently, or just up until last year, the, the fast track referral form just said abnormal chest X-ray and hemoptysis, but actually they're fairly late signs. The problem we've got here is often there's no symptoms at all until it's a late stage. And the symptoms can be really similar to those that we're seeing regularly in patients with COPD, which is why we think that active case finding has got to be a priority. And this, this condition is more than many others. It's really important that we as GPs just trust our gut feeling. We know when somebody walks in the room and you just have that feeling it's not quite right. But this year, this is even more of a challenge because of COVID and we may be seeing people remotely and it can be even harder to get a handle on, on whether things are going wrong. So before the pandemic hit, um, we started doing some early case finding, um, looking at patients when they attend for their COPD review and actually actively looking for whether they had symptoms suggestive of lung cancer. Um, and we use this template that many of your nurses will be very familiar with, um, as it's one of the ARDA's templates that is commonly used. But about halfway down on the right-hand side of this, there's um, a tab that says lung cancer screening. This tab is also found on the um, respiratory consultation um, tab as well. Um, and this just gives a, a good overview of symptoms to look for. Um, and they are quite vague, you know, fatigue, bit of a cough. And we've seen quite a lot of that. Um, weight loss, but it's putting it together. We did some case finding where we had uh, some practices who started to use this in COPD reviews and the nursing teams found it very useful because they get that gut feeling as well. But using this lung cancer uh, screening tool gave them a sort of shape to that, um, to that gut feeling that they could then pass this on to a, a GP to, um, to action and take things forward. Now this isn't um, a particular proposal at the moment to take this on when we're in the middle of a pandemic. However, I just wanted to highlight the fact it's a really useful tool when we're looking for trying to find these early cases. The other area that's worth looking at is thrombocytosis. We do an awful lot of blood tests and uh, the nice guidance is that um, patients who have a platelet count of over 400 should be offered a, a chest x-ray, uh, an urgent chest x-ray in those who are current or ex-smokers over the age of 40 and haven't had a chest x-ray in the last six months. So we've done some pilots of, of this guidance as well. Um, we looked at, at two sites with a total population of 33,000 um, and from this uh, came, um, managed to come up with two malignancies, one of which was a breast primary and one was a stage one lung cancer in an otherwise asymptomatic patient who's now on to have gone on to have treatment that is uh, this at this stage is hopefully curative. So this is something that's being rolled out across Dorset as part of um, early case finding work um, in order for us to start just to get used to acting on that platelet count um, and, and think platelet count x-ray. So when do we do these urgent chest x-rays? So there's an awful lot of situations when we should consider doing them. So age over 40 and two of these um, symptoms that are listed here. So again, quite vague, appetite loss, fatigue, an awful lot. Uh, these um, criteria, to be clear, are, are taken from the NICE guidelines. But also uh, over 40 and clubbing, thrombocytosis, as we've said, and chest signs. And I think that bottom list are things that we would already consider doing a chest x-ray uh, for. But also interestingly, new COPD, COPD with changing symptoms, symptoms of a chest infection that's required a second course of antibiotics, but also an interesting one at the bottom here, non-specific symptoms in a patient who doesn't normally present to the GP, but now att attends on two or more occasions. So just moving on to a clinical case that I'm going to talk through the primary care part of this case, and then Jenny's going to take it on further to look at the secondary care side of things. So this is Fred, who's 62, he's a retired builder. He's an ex-smoker, he stopped in his early 50s. He does have COPD and attends regularly for his annual reviews and normally has a couple of exacerbations a year. He's had two courses of antibiotics recently. The first of these courses was a rescue pack that he already had at home and then he requested a second course because it just hadn't quite done the trick, doctor. He's not particularly unwell, he's speaking in full sentences, he doesn't have hemoptysis. So the first question in this day and age is, would you bring him in? You know, we're doing this all remotely. We have to make a, a personal judgment call as to whether we would uh, handle this gentleman at a distance or remotely, um, or bring him in, sorry. Um, and that's obviously a personal decision for him and, and yourself. 
But let's just say we did bring this gentleman in and we examined him. He's got a quiet chest, nothing focal. He's got no clubbing, no lymphadenopathy, no SBC obstruction. He's sat to 94%. Yeah, it's not, not much different to what they are uh, normally for him. And his chest x-ray, there's nothing focal. But he doesn't look quite right. So we've said there that he had nothing focal on his chest x-ray. So does that matter? So the... The, the thing is there, it really does matter because in chest x-rays taken in the three months before a lung cancer diagnosis, 90% of them do show something suspicious of lung cancer. But actually that leaves 9.5% that don't. And 6% are, are reported as normal. So the overall false negative rate of a chest x-ray is 23%. Um, that's, that's obviously a, a quite an old paper. Uh, but just beware the normal chest x-ray a chest x-ray that's got a, an abnormality on it is, is very helpful. But if your gut feeling says something's not right, just follow your gut feeling. So what next? Would we do any other investigations? Would we routinely do blood tests at this point and look for that thrombocytosis? It's a difficult one to answer, but what we would say is that the fast-track referral criteria have changed. The criteria now are abnormal chest x-ray, hemoptysis, but also a normal chest X-ray, but clinical concern. And I would suggest this gentleman probably fits that criteria. And when we do these referrals, they're going to be asking for us to do blood tests anyway. The guidelines are we should be referring people as a fast track if we have a 3% concern. I, I think that's a tricky one because you, you take a, an 85-year-old gentleman, I think we've probably got a 3% concern about some form of malignancy somewhere, if not, you know, maybe the prostate. Um, but... We certainly need to take that on board and assume that you don't need to worry about sending these people in. The hospital is set up now to investigate these people and not even necessarily see them, but rule out a cancer um, in a very clear and defined manner. So the reason things have changed is based on the optimal lung pathway, which is a national pathway. Um, and we have been trying to create a pathway um, that is as close to this as possible. So the first stage of this is really the, the primary care end of the pathway. So we arrange a chest x-ray. Um, if this is abnormal, then the uh, x-ray report should, should then go direct to a respiratory consultant who will arrange a um, CT scan to be done, ideally within three to seven days of the chest x-ray. So this can mean that the patient is aware their chest x-ray is abnormal before we are, um, and that's worth bearing in mind. <clears throat> um, if the ch uh, chest x-ray is abnormal we will then still have to do a, a fast track referral uh, which Jenny will come on to. And, Andy before you go on just just go back to your patient so you've seen him in the surgery and you, you don't think he looks right can you elaborate on that what sort of things I mean we talk about gut feeling but gut feeling really is pattern recognition isn't it it's something subconsciously that we just think this doesn't follow the normal pattern so what was, it, what was it about this or what would it be about this patient that, that made you feel this was So I think different? the fact that he required two courses of antibiotics when he would normally not require two courses of antibiotics is a, is a bit of a red flag. Um, I think when people come in the door and they look like they've lost weight, you know, and most gentlemen don't weigh themselves, but they do have clothes that are looser than they used to be. And his is sat to 94. You know, if you look in the notes, they were 96 before. It's, it's that lots of things that are, are not quite as good as they were, but no one thing. Okay, thanks. So I'm going to hand over at this point to Jenny to take on this case uh, for this secondary care angle uh, and obviously be available for questions later. Jenny. So I'm Jenny Graves, one of the respiratory consultants at Dorset County Hospital, and I lead for lung cancer there. And I've been working with the CCG and, and Andy to help develop um, the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway across Dorset. So that's where I come from. Um, this patient that Andy had um, referred in, the two-week wait referral will have arrived and it will be triaged by a respiratory consultant at Dorchester, that's me. I'll then decide if a CT is needed and request it. And once the CT scan has been reported, then I'll make a decision as to what to do. So either the patient has cancer on their CT scan and they'll be seen in a fast-track clinic. There'll be non-cancer, but another respiratory pathology, pulmonary fibrosis, bronchiectasis, 
we will inform the patient by phone and in writing that there is no evidence of cancer and the GP will also get that. I personally explain what the CT did show and then say that they'll be seen routinely in clinic. Some will just be normal. Commonly, for example, the shadow on the chest x-ray was a nipple and there's no value in me bringing these people up to clinic. So scans that are completely normal or the finding on the chest x-ray is explained by say an abnormal rib or a nipple will write to the patient and let them know they've got no cancer and we won't plan on seeing them in clinic. As with all CTs, I find a lot of incidental omas um, and I will action all of those. So if I find a cancer at another site, I will make the referral onto that other site and I will let the patient know that they've been referred on. So I will deal with those incidental findings. I, they're not bounced back to primary care. However, as Andy said, actually, it's a small number that have, an, have a normal chest X-ray. And the vast majority of my patients, their chest X-ray is abnormal. And it's important that hospitals set up systems to find out about these abnormal chest X-rays. So what happens in Dorchester is the moment a chest X-ray is reported as suspicious of lung cancer, it gets put into my fast track folder that I review every day except the weekends. Um, I then have a look at the IT systems that are available to me, um, so previous imaging, letters on the system, and determine whether I think a CT is necessary. And I can't think of a case where I have not ordered a CT. Um, and my lung cancer nurse specialist will then contact the patients. We share an office. And how the discussion goes is, hello, I'm one of the nurses from the hospital. You've recently had a chest X-ray. Has your GP contacted you about that? Commonly, or sometimes, the GP has already contacted them and said they're referring in. But actually, we're often very quick with acting on that report. It can go into my folder and we're phoning the patient 10 minutes later. And then we explain that the chest X-ray is a crude tool, but it does show some area of change on it. And we would like to organize a CT scan. And we take a little bit of history about blood thinners, past medical history. The moment I know the patient's aware, I organize a CT scan and then we send out a letter asking for a fast track referral to be triggered. Um, then we basically follow, out, follow a very similar pathway to as I've previously discussed. Once the CT scan has been reported, I then triage it and work out which option we should follow, whether we see them or not. So why do we need a fast track form? But I'm... I feel this is obvious, but interesting when I've spoken um, to Andy and other G GP colleagues, they say, look, if you're doing all of that, why are you making me do more paperwork? Um, which I understand, and some of it is definitely to trigger the fast track and start the clock. I'm not so interested in that, actually. What I want to know is what you think the problem is or what you're worried about, because it helps us um, better address the situation. If you've done me a fast track referral and give me a lot of history, I might think, hang on, I'm gonna do a CT chest, abdomen and pelvis rather than just a staging CT chest. Do you want me to see your patient, if this, even if the CT is normal? That's entirely reasonable and I'm happy to see people. We're still seeing face-to-face -face patients or having telephone consults. But if you put that in the two-week wait referral, I'll know that you do want them seen. No cancer, great, but they'll have a routine clinic appointment. You know about your patients far better than I do. And so giving me a heads up of memory impairment, difficulties with transport, a worrying family history. Jenny, this is what this patient is really worried about, makes a big difference. And knowing an accurate um, medication history is hugely helpful. So, for example, with clopidogrel, that needs to be stopped for seven days before they'll do a biopsy. So the sooner I know about that, the easier it is for me to plan when to see them and whether we should think about stopping that sooner. So what happens to your patient once you've sent this two-week wait referral in? Well, and we have decided that they may have a cancer. They're either seen in a two-week wait clinic, which at Dorchester, because we're a DGH, is with any of the consultants, or with plural clinic that happens once a week on a Wednesday. And our cancer appointments have been face-to-face -face throughout COVID-19 at DCH. We make a fitness assessment, so that's obviously taking a history, seeing what they're like walking into the room, full pulmonary function tests, which again, we have been doing through COVID-19. We just have had to take extra precautions, but the lung cancer patients have been a priority. And then we sometimes do cardiopulmonary exercise tests.
We're then going to do a staging assessment. We've already got the CT scan by the time I've seen them in clinic. So that's commonly a PET scan and sometimes further imaging of the brain. And then we need to get tissue to work out whether it is a cancer, what type of cancer, what type of lung cancer. And then even more complicated, we need further information on the cancer in terms of whether the cancer certain receptors or pdl one which opens up an array of different treatment options. And the way we get biopsies are still through bronchoscopy, EBUS, which is endobronchial ultrasound-guided biopsy, so telescope into the lungs with an ultrasound probe and we biopsy the lymph node. CT or ultrasound-guided biopsy or medical thoracoscopy, which is where we go in with a telescope into the pleural space and take biopsies of the lining of the lung. We then discuss at the MDT with the results, a treatment plans formulated, we inform the patient face-to-face and make onward referrals to oncology, surgery, palliative care as appropriate. Don't worry, you don't need to digest all of this in one go, but I'm very mindful that actually we send this out to GPs all the time, the TNM uh, criterion, and it still stands for tumour nodes and metastasis, but every few years we do like to change it so that it's graded in a different way just to keep everyone on their toes. Um, And with uh, this, the tumour size is important with prognosis, so that's why they've split that out. Um, and patients will often ask about the stage of their disease and interestingly we don't tend to use stage we talk about TNM Um, but it's quite handy to know the TNM translation into the stage of the disease for the patients and it's just relevant in terms of treatment options and prognosis. So what treatments are available? I think some people still feel that Great if you can catch lung cancer early and treat it with surgery, but otherwise, is it still just chemotherapy and prognosis is poor? Actually, things have changed dramatically in the time that I've been doing lung cancer. So yes, if you have early stage disease, without a doubt, the gold standard treatment remains surgery. We shy away from pneumonectomies now and it's lobectomies and they're commonly done via video-assisted thoracoscopy. Yes, we use chemotherapy as we did before. But then I talked about these funny receptors on um, the tumour, which Nigel has told me I'm not allowed to talk about in depth because nobody cares except me, which is sad. But (laughs) we we basically look for things called EGFR, ROS1, ALK and BRAF. And that helps determine where people can have a tablet instead of chemotherapy to target the tumour. We measured PDL1 and that will help determine whether immunotherapy would be a treatment option. We have radical radiotherapy, stereotactic ablative radiotherapy, which is Sabre, stereotactic radiosurgery, SRS, and they're commonly used Sabre in early stage lung cancer, but the patient's not fit for surgery. So quite frail patients that previously we would have done nothing, we can treat radically with curative Sabre. Stereotactic radiosurgery, SRS, is what we often use to treat brain metastasis. And there's radiofrequency ablation and uh, cryo um, uh, treatment I've learned about today. So it's constantly changing. So lots of treatments available, but they do depend on me getting enough tissue to be able to determine which treatment is the best one. The thing about targeted therapy is that tablets can be tolerated by people that may not have been well enough to have conventional chemotherapy. So we're therefore investigating frailer patients that perhaps we wouldn't have done before. So this is a chest x-ray. I'm sure you all know that, (laughs) but it's a very abnormal one. So it's um, showing a very large left hilar mass and multiple metastasis throughout the lungs. So in bygone era, someone with metastatic adenocarcinoma of the lung, the treatment option would have been chemotherapy and prognosis would have been extremely poor in terms of months. This person had a PDL1 of 50% and so was given immunotherapy. This is their chest x-ray at six months post immunotherapy. It looks normal. You know, these are amazing results. So we have to get the right patients, uh, investigate them quickly and get them on the right treatments. At some point, because I'm not going to lie, that tumour will come back and will escape control of immunotherapy. But we may get many years of control, whereas before it would have been months prognosis. So I thought I'd start peppy with that and then talk about what we really know is that mean survival at one year post a lung cancer diagnosis is 37%. But really important, mean survival from lung cancer if you present as an emergency is three months. 
and early detection is key. So this is taken from Public Health England data 2015 um, and it's lung cancer survival at, at five years. Um, the percentage is up the side and the stage of disease is along the bottom and women do better than men with dark blue in this instance. But as you can see, your chances of survival at five years are much better at stage one than it is if you have stage four or five disease. So the holy grail for us is to detect these patients early. Now, I was asked to touch on this, and uh, I've done some uh, talks on it already, because people still get lung cancer during a pandemic. I think patients sort of have forgotten that. <laughs> I know that GPs haven't forgotten it. It's just people haven't necessarily been presenting to you to then go on and have the x-ray. And I did see flash up, although we will answer questions later. You're right, it was very difficult to get chest x-rays, um, and still is in some places. Um, but patients we found have been quite dismissive of their lung cancer symptoms. So I've seen several people presenting as an emergency who clearly had suspicious symptoms three months ago, and they've either been ignoring them or they've been putting them down to COVID-19 or they've said, well, I'm too frightened to come to the hospital because you'll give me COVID-19. And plus, no one's treating lung cancer or cancer anyway during the pandemic. So lots of myths out there that are preventing patients from uh, presenting to you. The British Thoracic Society um, provided some guidance for doctors differentiating between COVID-19 and lung cancer, and we'll go on to that next. But when I looked through it, I thought, well, this is common sense, really. Um, but it is a, a helpful uh, pointer, perhaps maybe to think, OK, I do want to bring this one up to the surgery or this one definitely needs a chest X-ray. I think this last point is really important, that treatment has continue, continued throughout the pandemic. We've been referring people for surgical resection. Southampton General moved their entire thoracic surgical department to their private hospital, run it on the NHS and set up an HDU there. So they were doing surgery throughout. We've been doing chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiotherapy, targeted therapy throughout. We're just trying to strike the balance. If someone perhaps is having adjuvant chemotherapy post lung cancer resection, which would just increase their long-term survival by one to 2%, sure, we decided not to give that chemotherapy during the pandemic. But, but treatments have been adjusted and um, discussed with patients to work out the best possible option. And for example, now testing for BRAF, which we didn't test for before, because a new treatment has become licensed for use in lung cancer if patients are BRAF positive, because it, it may well confer better outcomes in a pandemic. So the um, guidance is changing throughout and has been hugely adaptive. So this is the exciting slide from the British Thoracic Society that, as I say, I don't expect you all to run away with um, huge excitement about. And I think it's easy if you've got features of lung cancer and it's okay if you've got COVID-19. <laughs> it's the box in the middle, isn't it? Um, and I think that this is a little bit of what Andy has already touched on. It's that feeling of, hang on, this doesn't quite fit. It's the symptoms, okay, that might have been COVID-19, but they've persisted for longer than you would suspect. Send them for a chest x-ray is my advice. So these are my takeaway messages. Early diagnosis in lung cancer is key. We still haven't fully got there yet, although we are going to be touching on that next with Sarah. Um, and the initiatives that and has been part of, including the thrombocytosis, are you know, the way we need to be looking at things to try and pick up our patients earlier. The prognosis depends on the stage of disease, but the performance status and tumour type as well, because that gives us different treatment options um, available achieving the national optimal lung cancer pathway is the aim chest x-ray to ct to next steps as soon as possible and i'm not going to pretend i've got it 100 right yet at dorchester and, and indeed across dorset but it's what we're working towards there's many more treatments available now even for metastatic disease and i have a patient who presented with brain mets who is alive five years down the line people still get lung cancer during a pandemic and it's about thinking about lung cancer as well as COVID-19 and reassuring patients that actually hospitals are safe. I felt safer, which I've said to lots of people in Dorset County Hospital than I did in the supermarket. And we will still see and treat these patients appropriately. Thank you. I'm happy again to answer any um, 
questions at the end. Right, we'll move on to the next bit. So, Sarah, who's a GP in Southampton and the CCG Cancelly um, works for the Wessex uh, Rapid Diagnostic Service, which I'm sure she might touch on um, with some of these vague symptoms and gut feeling. Really important, the gut feeling of, I think there's something wrong here, but I'm not sure what it is. And I think that's one of the skills that GPs um, pick up and don't really always understand, but comes from seeing lots of patients and hopefully with a bit of wisdom and experience. And Sarah's been leading some work on lung health checks. I keep referring it to cancer screening for lungs and then get told off I'm not allowed to say that, but I'm sure she'll explain more. <laughs> Thank there. you, Doctor. Um, so, very exciting um, when we were told Southampton was going to be one of the 10 pilot sites for the lung health check. And as Nigel said, the long-term plan had quite a big ambition to diagnose many cancers at earlier stage to 75% before 2028. And um, one of the big projects within the long-term plan was rolling out lung health checks. That was based on programs that had been going on in Manchester and Liverpool that had shown quite amazing results. Um, and so Southampton has said one of those 10 sites, but the only site in the south of England, you can see that on the map, lots of other sites going on, many of those have been doubled up, but our nearest, um, our nearest site would be Luton and Thurrock. Um, so we are on our own on the coast. And there were some clear arguments um, about why we should be doing what Nigel will call lung cancer screening, and that is essentially what it is. Um, so the blue bars show the lung cancer stage diagnosis in Greater Manchester. So I've stolen this from the Manchester pack that we were given back in 2019. And then the orange bars show what screening results are for lung cancers. And you can see a huge number of those cancers are being picked up at stage one, um, which really does change the prognosis for many of these patients. And, you know, it's a clear argument really for that being rolled out more widely. Southampton getting picked, that's mixed blessings really. I think it's, it's fantastic news for our patients, but it's important to bear in mind we were picked because of our outcomes. We have a lot of deprivation in the city, we have high rates of smoking, and therefore we have got um, you know, not great rates when it comes to lung cancer, both in terms of the, you know, the rate, the stage at which they're picked up, and then their prognosis as a result. So as, as much as I'm really excited about this project, I, I suppose I'm sad that we've been given this for those reasons. Um, and we obviously want to do better for our patients and I'm hoping this will help. So quite broad inclusion criteria. So it's age range 55 to 75 and ever smoked. So ex-smoker, current smoker, it doesn't, doesn't particularly matter. And we've got that data from our GP practices and they've sent that in. When we designed the lung health check, that was all early 2019, a, a long time before COVID. And at that point, it was a face-to-face -face model where a patient would be invited in for a lung health check. They'd be seen by a nurse, a respiratory nurse, where they did a, uh, a questionnaire. They had some uh, basic observations taken, and then there was spirometry. And based on the results of, of those, those three um, things, want of a better word, um, they would be worked out whether they're high risk for lung cancer and have a low dose CT or whether they'd be discharged from the program without a CT. And our project in numbers would say that we had about 40,000 patients who were in the age range, about half of those had smoked, another half are likely to attend, half to get scans, and hopefully we will find 171 cancers over the lifetime of the project, which was running for three to four years. Obviously, so much has changed um, in primary care, in hospital medicine, and indeed for our lung health check as a result of COVID. So we were going live uh, back in late winter, early spring, and then it, after a few pilot patients, it's all just come to a halt. We've just started up again now um, in the last couple of weeks of August. We've moved to a virtual consultation model with our nurses, where patients are assessed over the phone, where they go through uh, a lot largest questionnaire with symptoms, and health advice is given, smoke cessation advice as well. There is no spirometry at the moment. Unfortunately, the opportunities for research that we had planned has been put on hold whilst we um, await um, more advice from NHS England. At the end of the questionnaire, they asked to assess whether they're high risk or low risk, and then those high risk 
patients will be offered a CT scan and I've got some pictures because I'm quite excited because we've got delivery of those um, and patients will go down to see those scanners at the moment they're in the centre of town. We recognise in Southampton our population and not all of them are mobile, not all of them have access to transport and so our mobile scanners will move around Southampton between the different areas so that we can pick up uh, different parts of the population and try and really get as many people um, turning up and, and engage with the lung health check as we can. So this is just another graph about what happens, just showing uh, it's a bit messy and it hasn't really projected very well, so I do apologise. Just showing patients are offered a lung health check, have an assessment, and then some are discharged straight away. So they're given reassurance, they're low risk for lung cancer, they won't have a scan, and they'll get passed back to normal management um, and any advice when needed. Those high risk patients will get a low dose CT scan on one of our trailers. And then some of those patients will go straight into a lung MDT. And some of those patients may go into other MDTs. So like Jenny said, if we pick up other cancers in other sites or other significant pathology, they will get managed within our UHS service um, without the primary care uh, needing to be involved, although they will be told. There's a couple of other pathways patients may end up on. So we know that lung um, need follow-up. And so depending on those lung nodules, they may get offered CT scans at different intervals. Every patient who has a CT scan after the initial screening will be offered a CT scan 24 months afterwards, just as another screening tool to make sure nothing has changed and nothing has developed over that interval. Now, you scan people, you find things, like Jenny said, um, and the spirometry was um, also going to pick up a number of patients who probably had undiagnosed COPD. Now, that's obviously on hold at the moment while our project is virtual and we've taken spirometry out, but we are going to find significant cardiac findings. And actually, at the moment, from our, our pilot patients, we are seeing um, significant coronary artery calcification and valvular disease in a number of patients that will need onward management um, and Q-risk assessment. Um, but 171 cancers, and I think that's the thing, these are 171 cancers that we're likely to pick up at an early stage and therefore offer them, you know, different options in terms of management, um, which is fantastic. So this presentation is also going to get to Wessex, and I was asked to speculate what may happen with the lung health checks. Now, I'm not going to, um, I'm not a policymaker for NHS England, so I'm going to be very careful about what I say, knowing that they may pick this up. The lung health check is one of the big projects in long-term plan and there's clearly an argument for doing a project like this and how it will look in the future, um, I don't know. And this is why we have pilots to swap out what works and what doesn't work and where we need to adjust things. I think it's quite likely that there will be a wider rollout based on the pilot sites and the data and I think that's the NHS England have given us those indications. And in terms of where next, I think it will again go to areas where there is the greatest need. So it's likely to be the city areas where there's deprivation, where we know that there will, you know, our patients will benefit. Um, but when it comes, if it comes, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to speculate too much more on that, I'm afraid. Um, but I'd love to see this more widely used and, and be a widespread screening programme like some of our other ones. Thank you. I think that's my pack done. Right, thank you very much. Um, that takes us nicely through from beginning to end, which gives, uh, I think when I talked to you all before, gave me a much more hopeful story of people with lung cancer where I have to say, you know, my heart sank whenever I saw an abnormal chest x-ray with query lung cancer. I thought the outlooks are really poor, life expectancy six months. So um, recognise that it doesn't mean positive things for everybody, but actually there is there's hope there that um, if we can pick more of these up early, we will do better. So this is what goes go through the questions. Um, so one question is, in East Dorset, we can't get chest x-rays for clear, for clear clinical scenarios. And I think, Jenny, that's what you were saying earlier, that because of COVID, the access to diagnostics in hospital was severely affected. And again, one of the things we're seeing across all cancers is that there are some cancers presenting later than they would normally have done, which is for a multitude of reasons. Sometimes patients are fearful of coming in. Sometimes they're declining referral to hospital because they fear COVID more than their cancer. And access to some diagnostic tests has been very difficult. Actually, probably more endoscopy than some of the others, but CT MRI has been difficult. 
My understanding is that um, we now have got um, the trajectory through the phase three letters, which have been asked each system to say, we want to be back to 100% by October, is that GPs should have full access to the investigations they had before, including chest X-ray. So whoever's anonymous that posted that, if you're still having difficulty, can you email me at the LMC and I'll take that up because we work quite closely with all the hospitals. And my understanding was that um, the X-rays were, uh, were now available. Um, Jenny, question for you. Can um, I just interject there, sorry, yeah. <clears throat> Nigel? Um, I would echo what Nigel said, that if you are having problems accessing uh, chest X-rays in Dorset, um, then I would know, because um, from the point of view of the optimal lung pathway, um, the steering group for that is still working on trying to improve our access. So if there are problems, um, then please let me know, ideally with actual case examples of, of scenarios. Uh, that'd be very helpful. So if, if anybody there wants to email me, I'll put you in touch with Andy, but don't send me clinical information at the LMC. Um, I liked your pathway for chest x-rays, Jenny. That sounds very sensible and really fits GP criteria. Please don't send it back to us. Um, question here is, um, do you know, is that common to most hospitals? There's somebody who obviously works in the Bath Swindon area. Um, would that be common for... So different hospitals have different systems. So we should all have developed systems to allow us to be notified of abnormal chest x-rays. And interestingly, when I came to Dorchester, that wasn't happening. And I was told there was no way it could happen. You know, the IT solutions were not there. There was no way I could be copied in onto the reports. Um, and it was just, it was not possible. And so it just involved a lot of meetings with the radiology team explaining why I wanted to know the results, some examples of where things had been missed, which were interestingly commonly from A&E, um, where nobody had acted on the reports, and coming up with a solution that was acceptable to my radiology colleagues that didn't take didn't cause them any extra work which I do understand because they're very overworked and so all this involves them doing is dragging and dropping into a box and they do no more and I think then by them seeing my work from that and the fact that something happened with that and it made a difference to patients and positive patient feedback um, now I've got people on board but it was a lot of effort it was a lot of hard work and I think that solution won't work everywhere and I also think that um, you need to work out what's right in your secondary care hospital. So Bournemouth, they, the consultants there respiratory do get copied in on the reports of all the abnormal x-rays. So it's down to your secondary care provider to have worked out a system within their trust and their IT framework that works. So the truth is absolutely yes, every hospital should have something similar. Will it be identical to the one I've set up? No. But again, the person that's posted that, if you email me offline, I'll take it up with RUH and Great Western and ask them if they've got a similar system that works really well in Dorset. It's often quite useful covering three counties because you can um, tell somebody that something better in another county. It sometimes uh, causes some movement in. Uh, yeah. um, I would also say, I mean, uh, I earlier, but now working in the rapid diagnostic service which is a virtual service and one of the great benefits of setting that up and I've sort of been peripherally involved particularly in the technology side of it is uh, shortly all the hospitals in Hampshire and Dorset will be able to see share images uh, across sites and also ICE requests will be more consistent across sites so some of this working at scale has significant benefits in terms of getting um, better situations. Um, question uh, probably for you Jenny is how consistent is the availability of all the tre treatment op options across the whole of Wessex I was very pleased that you didn't go into all the technical terms even no, though you're mean. <laughs> I, but I, I'm really interested that every um, branch of medicine you talked to there's got to be a list of three letter acronyms so you managed Absolutely. to get about 
six in. I did really yeah. well, and I was hoping it because then I could talk about it at length and explain them, but I, I won't. But yeah. um, in terms of the percentages, it's not. We like to pretend in lung that we're we're heading the way of breast, where you've got ER, PR, you know, positive re receptors. And with us, our positive receptors are EGFR out, ROS1 and BRAF, but it's a much smaller percentage of patients that have them. So I wrote it down to remind myself, but up to 23% are mutation, but then it's only 5% ALK, 1% to 2% are ROS1 and a 3% to 4% BRAF. So it's about uh, picking up those patients. Now, if we get one of those mutations, every, all the options, the treatment options in terms of the drugs that are available are available on the NHS and across the region. So there is no difficulty getting those in Dorchester, for example, compared to Southampton. Um, they're all available. Okay, that's, that's good to know because often we do see a sort of bit of a postcode lottery. I agree. Um, and do you know what? When they were first coming out, there was definitely an issue where some had their license but weren't available on the NHS. Um, and there was a difficulty with private healthcare then. So some people could get it privately. But actually, we're not finding that at the moment. Uh, it, at the moment, it's uh, available, some perhaps on a trial. And I think. I mean, it does change literally month to month. So I'll say this now and next month, there'll be, there will be one that isn't available, but they're being rolled out very, very quickly. And I'm confident that my patients, if they have a mutation, will get the best treatment available and they'll get the same treatment in Dorchester as they would in Southampton. Well, that's, that's good to know. Um, COPD and heart failure are difficult, but not unlikely combinations with a chest X-ray with no localised change, changes. Where does the chest x-ray findings and the referral stand in such situations? And also, what about when we're advised to repeat a chest x-ray in a few weeks' time? Are we just delaying things? Um, so the first one, you're right. COPD and heart failure can definitely appear on the chest x-ray and make it difficult to interpret. But for me, if you're worried, as Andy discussed, refer them and that, that's someone I'd get a CT scan on. Um, and in terms of the repeat x-ray, I think, Interesting one. So again, I felt that those were ones that were slipping through the net. So now we've got a pathway at Dorchester where anyone who's awaiting a six-week chest X-ray is coming with pneumonia is on a centralised list. I mean, I, this is making me sound like a control freak, but I manage and then make sure that they have their six-week chest X-ray and I review it and determine if they need any further imaging. It's difficult if you do a CT scan too early in an infective process or a pneumonia. All that happens is you'll get a CT say, scan saying, uh, this shows pneumonia, I can't rule out an underlying malignancy, uh, repeat the CT at six weeks. So there is a balance to be had in that if somebody has given you really good symptoms of a, a pneumonia, they're feeling a bit better on their um, antibiotic ratio pneumonia, then a six-week chest x-ray is definitely the right way to go. If you've got someone that had more worrying symptoms and it didn't actually fit with infection, they brought up some blood, they'd lost some weight, then sure, we'll CT earlier. So it is a balance. You're right. In some patients, I think if it, the, the history doesn't really fit with an infection, I'll CT them early. But if it's a good history, then a repeat chest x-ray at six weeks has its benefit to allow that CT to actually give me much better pictures. Okay, so we're in this pandemic. If chest x-rays can take up to six weeks and have a false negative rate of 23%, I mean, presumably the 23% false negative has been improved over time, that we're not getting so many of those. Um, but if GPs are concerned about lung cancer, is it really worth us requesting a CT scan of full blood count from the outset? So I think it depends where you work, doesn't it? Because some places GPs can't request CT scans locally with us it can be quite difficult um, and so I know that will be difficult uh, different across uh, the region you're, you're quite right that the the chest x-ray can be really helpful in saying oh actually there's a big pleural effusion it's much better for this person to go to the pleural clinic me sample first so chest x-rays really do have their place and are useful but in a pandemic where you're massively struggling to get a chest X-ray, I had plenty of referrals of GPs saying, I'm worried about this person. Um, and bless them, they had requested a chest X-ray. And I could see it was booked for three weeks' time. But on the history that they gave me, I just organized a CT scan. So that's why the information that you provide on the forms is so helpful. Because actually, if you send me a referral saying, I'm really worried about this person, or they've been having hemoptysis, 
for me, that's someone I would organise a CT scan on. Now, I appreciate that will be different with different secondary care providers, unfortunately, but I am in agreement with you. If they've got worrying symptoms and you're worried about them and we can't quickly and easily get a chest X-ray, then contact us because I may well get a CT scan. And if you're able to do that and have very robust systems in your primary care area to organise the CT and ensure that something is actioned quickly, great. Okay, My GPs um, don't have that ability, I don't think. Andy? To um, respond a little bit further to that, um, so across Dorset, we can't um, order CT scans. I can't speak for the rest of Wessex. Um, and I think there is generally a feeling if you can't get a chest X-ray, request a chest X-ray and do a fast track and make it clear on the fast track that you have requested a chest X-ray. Uh, there has been some discussion. Different consultants have different feelings about whether it's okay to go straight for fast track without a chest X-ray. But if you can't get a chest X-ray, there is no debate still fast track them but make it clear that you have tried to get a chest x-ray um, I when i first came into this i as a, as a gp one of my missions was to try and get it so that we could we as gps could always organize the check the ct scan but actually my, my changed over the last couple of years because when we organize a ct scan when it's abnormal we then have to give this patient a, a, a long lag time before they see someone because we then fast track this abnormal ct scan when Jenny sees a CT scan that's abnormal, she's got a team of people to deal with that patient and longer, you know, a, a, a clinical nurse specialist who can sit with that patient and actually accurately answer all the questions. So I think the issue isn't really can we request a CT scan, it's can I actually genuinely respond to the results of that CT scan? And I'm not actually sure I can. So let me pull, <laughs> let me pull two questions together then. Um, how many, how many patients do you need to refer so to get one lung cancer? So you order a CT scan. What's the pickup rate on a CT? And the sort of follow-up question from it is how reassured should we be that a patient, patient definitely doesn't have lung cancer with a normal CT? If they continue to have symptoms, um, is it worth repeating the CT scan? Do you ever repeat the CT scan or are you relatively reassured if the CT is normal? So I am reassured by a normal CT scan. Um, do I uh, never not repeat it? No. So sometimes a GP will refer back and say, look, you did this CT, it was normal, but they're still not right. And then I'll have a look at the case to decide, well, do I need to see the patient? Are we missing something else? Is it a different type of image that I need? So Sarah, uh, uh, Sarah the Southampton, you're, how are you picking the people for the screening? Are they just, are you just doing it? by writing to people, sending a text message? So um, the way that we've collected the data is we've actually asked practices to share lists directly with UHS through a data sharing agreement, which picks up all the patients in the age bracket who have got a um, smoking code that would suggest that they were once a smoker or a current smoker. And then there are standard letters that are being sent out by UHS inviting them to contact the service to arrange an appointment, a virtual now, a virtual appointment with one of our um, respiratory nurses who will go through the assessment on the phone. Um, so that's how we're doing that at the moment. So those lists have all been collected now and have all been shared with UHS. They're just working through those by locality to make sure that we pick up the people where the trailers are to try and get the best up to take really of those scans if they're needed. So Andy, the question is whether chest x-ray should go through the hospital or another provider like Care UK. I mean, presumably for a chest x-ray, it shouldn't matter that there, there should be some you know, um, standards, whether they're a private provider or an NHS provider? I think if a patient needs a chest x-ray, particularly during a pandemic, I don't really mind how they get a chest x-ray. Um, ideally, when, when image sharing gets easier, which is coming on, then um, that will help if they have a chest x-ray in one hospital and they're seen in a different hospital. Obviously, if they've had it done through a private provider, that can have an effect, but... Um, if it's abnormal, they need to be seen by a fast track and it is abnormal, full stop. Uh, whether, it, whether the hospital then choose to repeat it is, is up to them, but essentially they just need to chest x-ray. Okay, Andy, from going back to what you were saying earlier, how significant is family history? So very, very early lung cancer in a smoker. Uh, would this warrant uh, screening? 
Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, if there's a strong family history, then we're looking at early case findings across Dorset. And um, so I would have a fairly low threat with a significant family history for doing a chest X-ray. Whether they would be and they um, weren't screening, I think only Sarah can answer whether that's um, taken on board in the screening um, sense for lung health check sense. Um, but you know, if a patient's worried and they've got a strong family history and they were brought up in a household of heavy smokers, um, then uh, and they're over forty, then I think a chest X-ray is perfectly reasonable. Okay. Um, answer the question about the screening. Yeah, whether sorry, they can... So at the moment, the protocol, because this may be a wider rollout, is very strict. So we're only taking people who have smoked or are smoking. So a family history on their, on, on its own, if they never smoked, would not enrol them into our screening programme as it's designed at the moment. Okay, thanks. Um, do all chest x-rays in A&E get reported? Some of the suspicious, some urgent ones don't. Try to get a report. Be, um, I think mine might be working again now, Nigel. Um, so in Dorchester, yes. Every single x-ray is now reported. What about all the other counties? In Bournemouth, uh, in Bournemouth uh, as well. Right. Hampshire, Sarah? Uh, Southampton, yes. I couldn't talk for the whole of Hampshire, but Southampton now reported. Okay. With the merged CCGs, you'll be able to, you'll be able to speak for the whole of Hampshire. We'll see. But I think that's yet to be agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay. And um, what about targeted radiotherapy options? Yes, is that talking for, so there's, that's Sabre really, so, um, and uh, that is a very good option for patients that are not fit enough for surgical resection for early lung cancer. So surgery is still the best, although if you go to conferences, there's lots of debates, but surgery still has the better outcomes. Um, Sabre is really designed for early lung cancer. The, the cancer has to be of not too big and away from big airways um, so that they don't irradiate through and it erodes through. So it has to be in a certain position and you have to not have a lot of background fibrosis because the targeted radiotherapy, although it is very targeted, the tumour can still exacerbate background fibrosis. For us in uh, Dorchester, at the moment we're referring people to Southampton, but the plan is that it should be coming to Bournemouth. So it is getting closer. The recommendations it should be more widely available. But bearing in mind when I first started that people had to go to London from Dorchester. So things are creeping closer. Good. Right. We're coming near to end of our time. So I'll just go around um, the three of you and ask you for some final reflections. Andy? On the spot there. I think the reflection I would comment on is that I think that the system is still clearly different in different areas of Wessex. Um, and I'm based in Dorset. If people have got concerns, please do email me. Um, uh, Nigel, I'm happy for you to share that uh, contact details. Um, if there's things that need to be brought up in the Dorset um, setting. But the optical lung pathway is a national pathway that we're all supposed to be moving towards. So across the whole of the region, we should be, you know, hospitals should be moving towards this and that should make things easier for us in primary care. Thank you. Jenny, last reflection. Um, I, I would agree with that. The national optimal lung cancer pathway is where we need to head, but it is extremely hard to meet the targets and the timeframes in it, but we are working towards it. Um, and to throw it out there, because we've not touched on it at all, I think one of the areas we need to be massively focusing on going forward is cigarette smoking. Um, because until we can properly have a robust system countrywide where we can refer people in for smoking cessation and have them supported, it almost feels like I'm messing around the edges and uh, ignoring the elephant in the room. So that's where I'm certainly keen that things move forward. So just to reassure you, you're not messing around at the edge. And link the risk to smoking and COVID linked in with smoking cessation. Yeah. Um, so I absolutely agree with you. But what's been quite enlightening tonight is the other risk factors. And it's not just smoking, where I think sometimes people can almost give up because they think, well, you know, if people want to smoke, they know the risks. Um, if they want to stop, they can stop. Sarah, final, final thoughts from you? Um, obviously, I, I, I agree with Andy's systems, uh, with pathways and referral systems in Southampton, particularly regarding any cancers, not just lung cancer. I'd, be, I'd love to know. Please tell me um, and my contact details um, can be made available. 
the the other reflection is not everyone fits pathways not everyone fits ng12 um and lung cancer pathways and therefore you know my shameless plug of the rds and the rapid diagnostic services we roll that out is if you are worried that a patient's got cancer and you've just got that sense that there's something going on do consider a to rapid diagnostic service um, and we will pick these patients up and help manage those and investigate them um, onwards needed. Thank you very much. So can I thank um, all the delegates for joining us this evening? I realise it's you know, often after a busy day and you've given up your valuable time in the evening, but particularly can I uh, thank our three speakers and Louise. Louise uh, works with me at the LMC who's been managing the back office stuff. Um, but for Jenny, Sarah and Andy, thank you very much for giving up your evening and actually sharing your expertise with us. I've certainly found it really interesting and I've learned quite a lot by talking to you before this and actually through this um, session. So thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.